Welcome back to episode 10 of the Boundary Rider podcast. I'm joined, as always, by Nick Savage. Nick, who would have thought 10 episodes? We've already made it. Yeah, 10 episodes in, and we haven't even had any test cricket yet. And we're, we're finally here on day one of the first test match of Australia versus India. It, it feels like an eternity since we've had some test cricket at home. But uh, thank the Lord we're finally here. I cannot wait. It's felt like so long and we're currently recording this on the morning of the first test in Adelaide. That's the one benefit of it being a day-night test. Got a little bit more time in the morning to get your, get your affairs in order before you have that appointment with the couch for a long eight-hour spell straight into the night. It is so exciting. Yeah, I had a big sleep in. No complaints from mine at all. I love a sleep in, so uh, day-night test matches suit me very nicely. Well, we've got plenty to get through today. Of course, we're going to preview this first test between Australia and India at Adelaide Oval. Plenty to chat about there. Joe Burns, Cam Green, a quick look at the Indian side as well. Then, of course, we're going to have a run through what's happened in the BBL so far, including the first X-Factor players to be substituted out of the game. Nick had a chat to Dan Sams after his match-winning performance for the Thunder. Then we're going to quickly wrap around all the other news making headlines at New Zealand, joint test number one team in the world. South Africa versus Australia, could that be played in Perth? And, of course, the rest of the schedule has been released for the Australian domestic season. Before we get into all of that, make sure you subscribe to the Boundary Rider podcast. We are on Apple and Spotify. Check out our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are there, and you can also hit us up at BoundaryRiderPod at gmail.com. Nick, first test of the summer. It is always so highly anticipated and... About a fortnight ago, I think everyone was kind of calm about where we're at. Australian team looked well-placed, but suddenly in the last week or so, it's been absolute chaos with the amount of uncertainty about the makeup of the team. A few hours out from the game, I guess the big talking point is it looks likely that the opening pair is going to be Joe Burns and Matthew Wade. What's your verdict on that? Well, certainly it's a very unstable opening partnership. One of them I don't think has ever opened the batting in first-class cricket, perhaps a couple times in the Shield, but he's a renowned middle-order batsman, Matthew Wade. So an experiment, really. It seems to be just sort of fixing up a hole at the top of the order there. And and Joe Burns, I mean, his lack of form has been well-reported. He's averaging six with the bat this summer. So it's one of the least reliable opening partnerships I can think of for quite a while in the Australian test side. Well... Justin Lang has certainly made it clear that he still backs Joe Burns. I mean, there was some interesting stuff that we saw on Twitter throughout the week of him confronting Joe Burns and the Nets a little bit sort of Burns faced one ball. I think it was either Tuesday or Wednesday and straight away uh, Langer was down there to have a chat to him and we're not sure what it was about, whether it was technique, but clearly he wants to work hard with Burns and sees him as the opener for the foreseeable future. Uh, This is what Langer had to say during his press conference on Tuesday about why he has confidence in Burns still. I've maintained, I've been privately and publicly backing Joey in the whole time. Uh, He's a very good player. You don't lose your talent overnight. Uh, He also understands, though, that the runs are the greatest currency of value to any player. He's been a bit light on, but we'll have a look at him. We'll get eyes on him today. We'll see how he's going. I'll I'll, um, have a chat to him today. And we'll make our decision on who's going to open in the next day or so. So that's what Langer had to say about Burns. Nick, do you kind of see his point that 
he does have a bit of confidence in him and he hasn't necessarily failed at test level yet. Or like you were saying before, because of his recent record just in first-class cricket alone, does that mean his place in the, in the side should have been more under threat? I do think certainly if Warner and Pekofsky were available and fit, then Burns would not be playing this test match. Um, that's just a gut feeling I had. But as you said, Joe Burns is the... He was part of the Test Cricket last summer. They won five games in a row. Burns, he wasn't amazing, but he didn't do terribly either. And I think for that reason, you kind of have to back him. You can't rush another player into the squad, say a Sean Marsh and a Kawaja, and just sub out your incumbent opening batsman for just for a streak of bad performances, yes. But we've seen this before. Michael Hussey, before the 10-11 Ashes series, had a horrific run of form. He was looking terrible in the Sheffield Shield. And then he was Australia's highest run scorer in the Ashes series that summer. So we'll have to wait and see. But realistically, Burns, um, he's run out of chances. He absolutely has. He needs some big runs this test match. Otherwise, he'll be a pretty quick replacement for David Warner and Pukowski when they come back from injury. Well, this summer could now be the making of Burns. He's back against, against the wall. So if he makes runs, they will certainly be worth gold for him. You mentioned one thing then that I want to chat about. How good was the chat about Sean Marsh earlier this week? I mean, it, he was trending on Twitter because people were like, maybe this is the answer. But do you think, obviously it was never actually considered by the Australian team, but what did you make of all the talk about Sean Marsh and I guess to a lesser extent, Osman Kwaja? Oh, it's just a meme. The whole thing was a meme, realistic. It was never going to happen. It wasn't because the selectors have made it pretty clear that Sean Marsh just wasn't in contention anymore. I think it would have been different if Sean Marsh wasn't the Australia A squad playing alongside the likes of Harris and Nick Maddinson. But I, I think they've put a red line through Sean Marsh. I know Justin Langer said that they hadn't, but um, I think regardless of what happens, we won't be seeing Sean Marsh on the Australian side again, unfortunately. As, as hard as that is to say, because he seems like an absolutely brilliant character and he's obviously such a talented batsman, I think, unfortunately, he's just had one too many chances. And I think realistically, he knows that as well. I know Adam Vo just sort of said during the week, he knows his Australian career is kind of over. He's 37, he's over the hill now, and he's certainly represented Australia a lot of times. And while he hasn't made the most of that, he will be known as sort of a good Australian player who we can look back on in the years to come. I guess the other side of this opening partnership, this equation we have to look at, is Matthew Wade moving up the order. Uh, as you mentioned, he's never actually opened the uh, for in first-class cricket. He's never opened the batting. But for me personally, I like the move in terms of right now, for what we have available, I think it's the right thing to do because it also gets informed Cam Green to the side. But what's your take on moving Wade to the opening spot? Well, it, it fixes two problems, really, doesn't it? it? It fixes the problem at the top of the order and it, it allows the Australian selectors to bring in Cameron Green. Now, uh, what I'd love to know is how Matthew Wade feels about this. Does he feel more comfortable as a number six or was he genuinely eager to have a go at the top of the order? Because it, if it did come to a situation where the selectors said, hey, we like this Cameron Green guy, you can stay in the side, but you basically have to open the batting until Warner comes back. That seems like a pretty harsh situation for Wade, considering he hasn't done badly in the Australian team or the Sheffield Shield. So I'd love to hear what he thinks about it and, and whether he was eager to test his ability at the top of the, org- or top of the order or whether he was kind of forced up there just so they could bring in Cameron Green. It'll be interesting to see. 
Well, the way Wade was sort of spoken about throughout the week was that they see him as being a, a utility player who can fit in where they need him to. And obviously, opener was the spot here. I guess my concern is that if Green does amazingly, and look, who knows, it might be just a taste for Green and then he might sit out in Boxing Day and Wade will go back to six. But if Green does well and Wade doesn't as at the top of the order, do you then keep Green and drop Wade for, say, a Warner or Pukowski if they're both fit for Boxing Day? That's the thing, isn't it? That's almost, that's probably going to happen. That could happen. Cameron Green has looked fantastic with bat and ball over the past couple of months. And if he does perform strongly, they're not going to drop him. And they're not going to drop this prodigy player who, you know, has been touted as the best player since Ponting. And when Warner and Pukowski do come back, will there even be a spot for Matthew Wade again? And and that is something that I'm sure he's thought about, but it's, um, it's, it is concerning for Matthew Wade for sure. I guess at the end of the day, we've got to look towards the future sometimes with Australian cricket that Wade is in his mid-30s, sort of early to mid-30s, Cam Green's 21. So without a doubt, Cam Green is the player who will be in this side for the next 10, 12, maybe even longer years. So if Wade is to miss out, obviously while he is in good form and he has been in good form for a number of years in first-class cricket, we've got this guy, Cam Green, who I think Andrew McGlashan from ESPN Quick Info put up a stat on Wednesday night saying for anyone in the past sort of 12, 18 months in first class cricket, Cam Green has the highest average in the world. It's something in the seventies or something like that. So it's almost hard not to pick him. And then if he does force weight out of the team, I guess there is a kind of a good argument for that. It's a shame because Matthew Wade, since he has returned to the test side in that Ashes series has done very well. Um, he didn't have the best home summer last year, but um he certainly hasn't done anything that warrants being dropped from the side. So we'll see how he goes as an opener. Like, who knows? We might see over the next three, four years, Warner and Wade opening the batting. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. But uh, hopefully, just for his own sake, he scores some runs in Adelaide against the pink ball. And uh, we'll see him continue his incredible form. Because not just in the first-class cricket, he's done very well in the shorter formats as well. So, yeah, very talented player. And uh, hopefully, he can continuous stint in the test side for a bit longer. We'll have to wait and see. Definitely. Well, ahead of Cam Green's likely debut for Australia, uh, managed to hop on a press conference with his teammate over from WA, Jai Richardson, who also debuted quite young and sort of asked him about what it was like debuting at young at a young age and if he had any advice for his Western Australian teammate. Have a listen. I think if he looks back past his, you know, three, four or five previous innings, I think he'll be doing okay. Um, you know, he he knows now what what works best for him. Um, he's learned a lot about his game over the last 18 months. Um, so I think he just needs to go in and back himself. It sounds so simple, but he knows what he's done to get there. Um, he knows what's working for him with the bat and with the ball as well. So super exciting for him. He's such a gun. Um, you know, Australian cricket should be really, really excited about the prospect of Cam Green. Um, I certainly am very keen to watch if he gets a go. All right, Nick, quickly before we move on from the Cameron Green discussion, bowling-wise, sort of JLs and Tim Payne have both said that he doesn't have to bowl. They've kind of picked him as a batsman because that's the weight of runs that he has. He can be picked as a batsman. But do you expect him to see him bowl and I think Tim Payne kind of hinted that that four-over spell restriction might be lifted now. Yeah, thankfully, I think he did quite strongly suggest that um, he will be hopefully required to bowl a bit more than four overs per innings because 
he just seems to have a knack of generating extra bounce and seam out of the wicket sometimes, obviously because of his extra height. Um, but even while he has been recovering with this lower back strain problem, his run-up has been restricted as well. He's kind of been lumbering in, but still quite easily reaching 140 Ks an hour. So that's really exciting, obviously, for any, um, you know, the Australian test side, because for about 15 years, we've been looking for this Andrew Flintoff substitute, and we seem to have found him, um, which is really, really exciting. But uh, hopefully we can see him bowl more than that four-over restriction per innings, ideally. And he's definitely looked good when he's been bowling in the first-class matches this summer so far. Speaking of bowling, Nick, Nathan Lyon came out and said, Australia, we've got the best bowling attack in the world. What are you expecting to see in Adelaide with the pink ball? Well, I think this is the seventh test match that Australia have played with the pink ball. And in all six of them, the bowling attack have been phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I can't think of a time in a pink ball test where the batting, the opposition batting side have performed well. I think there was one test match where Pakistan did quite well against the pink ball. But realistically, the seam bowlers and Nathan Lyon have dominated. Lyon seems to love Adelaide now. Since that 2014 incredible match he had a few years ago, he seems to always perform well in Adelaide with the pink ball. So it's not just a seam-friendly um, conditions with the pink ball under lights. Nathan Lyon is certainly a threat as well. And um, I think he's right. Australia has the best bowling attack in the world at the moment. I think most people would agree with that. New Zealand's probably a close second, but they don't seem to have a strike spinner. Hmm. Well, I can't wait to see Mitchell Stark back in action with the pink ball. He's absolutely devastating under lights when he gets that ball moving around a little bit. Uh, the the one thing I will say, it will be interesting to see whether the changing conditions in terms of no saliva or sweat or anything like that on the ball plays an impact. Maybe it moves around a bit less under lights because this will be the first sort of pink test we see under the new COVID world. So I guess that could potentially be a bit of a talking point. But I think whoever wins that toss is going to be batting first because they do not want any chance of having to open the batting under lights on day one or day two. So I think definitely see you'll see whoever wins the toss will be batting first just purely because they don't want to be facing that pink swinging ball under lights. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. It will be interesting to see how the COVID restrictions play into things. But I think regardless, if you if you give Boomerah and Shami the ball under lights with a, with a fresh pink pill, that's going to be difficult regardless. So um, a great challenge for um, for Joe Burns particularly. I mean, he's had, I mean, in the Sheffield Shield where it's been very high scoring, he couldn't score many runs. How will he go against Boomerang and Shami under lights with the pink ball? Oh, that'll be a, a very tough challenge for him if that situation does come up in the test match. But uh, that's the video test cricket. I'm just keen to see what, what unfolds. And I guess on the flip side, we have to look at the Indian openers because while Australia has been having having their own sort of troubles in picking our best two, that there has been a big debate over who should be opening the batting for India. Uh, Prithi Shaw and Shubhan Gill, it was essentially a battle for them in the, the last Australia A Indians game. And Mayank Angrawal, they were pretty set on opening the batting with him. But somewhat surprisingly, the Indians have confirmed that Prithi Shaw will be opening the batting, even though Gill sort of got more runs. Uh, do you think there's still a little bit of a weakness there in terms of Australia could potentially get India two down quite early, or do you think we're sort of underestimating them? Well, Maya Agarwal, I remember last time India toured, he had his test debut at the MCG, and I was immediately impressed with what I saw there. He was showed a lot of temperament and skill for an opening batsman. So, I mean, we have there hasn't been a lot of discussion about him, but he will certainly be a, a high run scorer in this series, I believe. 
but certainly then the other partner there is somewhat of a weakness. Uh, Prithvi Shaw is obviously a talented player, but hasn't really proven himself at test level. He got that century on debut, which was phenomenal a couple of years ago, but he hasn't necessarily nailed down that spot. And um, Shubnam Gill, I liked, I really liked what I saw in that Australia A warm-up game. He's obviously a talented player as well. But I think inexperience comes into the fore there because I don't think he's had a test debut yet. So certainly the openers aren't the best opening pair we've seen from India. But you remember last time they toured down in 2018, they had an even worse opening partnership. I think Kaur Rahul and Murali Vijay, they couldn't score a run. They were dropped halfway through the series, the pair of them. So whatever happens, it can't be as tumultuous as they were two years ago because that opening partnership was just awful. And obviously, KL Rahul isn't in this game, but do you think he's potentially the like-for-like replacement when Coley leaves to go back home for the birth of his first child? Yeah, I'd say so. I I think that's the sensible option because obviously he's been in and out the Indian side, but he has a lot of experience and he has test centuries. And more importantly, he has test centuries in Australia. So um, certainly he's probably the person who will come in. Um, I haven't outside of him, there are, I think, one or two other options. But yeah, KL Rahul seems to be the the like-for-like replacement. Well, the one guy who might consider himself a little bit unlucky to not be in the team after his incredible century at the SAG is Rishabh Pant. Uh, Ritaman Saha has been preferred with the gloves, which I think makes sense. He's an experienced option and probably a little bit safer with the gloves than Pant. But uh, do you think that's the right call? I think I'd say so. Yeah, I I mean, you can't be relying on your number seven for runs. You, You should always be picking your first choice keeper, your best keeper when it comes to test cricket. You can get away with it in T20 cricket. That's why we've seen the Big Bash, the likes of Hanscom and Bancroft taking the gloves. Um, but yeah, in Test cricket, if your gloveman is your best keeper in the country. And I do think uh, Saha is a slightly better gloveman than, uh, than Rishabh Pant. Well, I guess the final thing we have to look at in terms of this Indian side that was already confirmed on Wednesday makes it nice and easier for us media folk being able to look at the team rather than what the Aussies are doing, making us wait until the toss. Three quicks and a spinner. Boomer Shami Yadav, Umesh Yadav, and Ravi Ashwin as the spinner. That's a pretty world-class lineup. Do you think that we occasionally forget here in Australia just how deadly that sort of attack can be? I still have nightmares of what Boomer did the last time they came down. So uh, to an extent, to an extent we can um, because obviously the pace bowlers, what the touring pace bowlers seem to do is get a bit overexcited about the bouncy conditions and then drag it a bit short. I've noticed that certainly when England have come down, when India come down, they just seem to bowl a little bit short. Um, so hopefully they can sort of rectify that this series. But the only problem with that bowling attack from India, I think, is Ravi Ashwin. I mean, we know how classy he is in the subcontinent. He's, he's one of the best ever bowlers in the subcontinent. But he always seems to struggle down here in Australia. Um, he, he always seems to be outclassed by Nathan Lyon completely. So hopefully Ravi Ashwin can rediscover, I don't know, a little bit of form in Australia because otherwise he'll just concede 100 runs every innings as most touring spin bowlers seem to do. That's the thing. It's just international spin bowlers just always struggle when they come here. Nathan Lyon has certainly got those conditions worked out. You mentioned Boomer giving you nightmares. That one ball that sticks out for me from that last tour was that like loops slower ball Yorker that trapped Sean Marsh on the pads. I still think about that almost daily in terms of what a brilliant ball that was. 
Well, I think the beautiful thing about that ball is how the T20 game is starting to creep into test cricket, but but in a good way in that, you know, these variations that we see so often in T20 cricket, the slower balls, the knuckle balls, the, the slow ball bounces, all those sort of things, they do have a place in the test game. And Shaw Marsh was just completely baffled by it. He, he did not expect it even slightly. It was the final delivery before lunch. And on it, it was named in... Um, Crick Info's top 20 deliveries of the century, I think. It was ranked at number 15 or 16, and rightfully so. Um, that just shows the benefits of being a bowler in all three formats because you can utilise those sort of extra styles of deliveries in the test game. Well, just a quick shout-out for that Crick Info list. The the ball that topped that list was Ryan Harris's incredible delivery at the, the Wacker to dismiss Alastair Cook, and it was the anniversary of that ball yesterday. Was it yesterday? Yeah, I saw oh, some brilliant. posts about it, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, that was obviously just a highlight of that Ashes series. That was the moment England lost the Ashes, like right there. Before we get into our predictions of what is going to happen this test, here's what Virat Kohli had to say leading into the match. I, I like to keep things very simple. I, I don't quite um, um, carry forward anything from the past. I think it's it's very important to stay in the present moment and understand the process that you're going through in, in that particular moment. So last time around our challenge was different starting in Adelaide. We, we um, obviously had um, a goal in, in our site, which we wanted to achieve, which was to win the series. And it was important to start. And uh, the goal remains similar this time around as well. Um, having said that, a pink ball test is probably going to be a bit more challenging in terms of conditions and, how the ball moves around in the evening and stuff like that. So, yeah, for us as a team, it's about adaptability and and being able to adapt to different conditions. All right, Nick, give me your predictions. What happens in this first test? Oh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's going to be a very closely fought contest that'll go down to the wire, like we saw at Adelaide a couple of years ago. That's that's what I'd love to see. Um, I honestly can't, with these two starting 11s, I can't pick a, a stronger side because there's so much talent in both of them. So I'm just hoping that it's a really close contest that goes down to day five. That's what I'd love to see. I think my prediction is it's going to be finished early on day five. I think we might struggle to get there just because we'll see a lot of wickets. I think we'll see a Steve Smith century. That's I'm just putting that out there now. Uh I think we'll see an Indian century, but I'm going to say it's not going to be Pajara. It's not going to be Kohli. It's going to be Rahane. I think he looks in good touch. So, yeah, they're my predictions for this first test. I think Steve Smith's a very wise prediction considering his just ridiculous record against India. Just the number of centuries he has against India and England is is ridiculous. And, yeah, Rahane, um, obviously stepping up as captain for most of this series and um, certainly he'll he'll take on that extra responsibility um, very well. He's uh, he's a good cricketing mind and a, and a very talented batter as well. So yeah, good 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 choices there, mate. Very good choices. All right, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back with a wrap up of the BBL action so far. All right, Nick, we are a week into Big Bash 10. We've seen 
plenty of action, not much use of the X Factor, but the the new rules have still created plenty of talking points. Uh, what have you made of the competition so far? And have you watched much of it, really? I have. I have been watching quite a bit of it. And um, after the first few games, I could just tell that the competition was desperate for an exciting match. I think the first four or five, they were pretty one-sided. They, you know, they, none of them really went down to the wire. And um, I think the competition was really calling out for a, a bit of a nail-biter. And thankfully, uh, Daniel Sams provided that in uh, a pretty explosive performance just the other night. That was a fantastic innings against the Brisbane Heat. We can talk about Ben Logland's bowling and oh. maybe not being up to scratch for the last few overs of a T20 match, but at the end of the day, you've still got to clear the rope and Daniel Sams did that really well. And from a position where I think Ricky Ponting in commentary gave the Thunder a less than 10% chance of winning, they still managed to get the job done. It was great to see Daniel Sams pair with Ben Cutting as well. Because I feel like Ben Cutting is sort of a um, more experienced version of Daniel Sams. They're both useful down at uh, six and seven in the batting order. They've both got very strong levers. They're both, um, I guess, uh, talented bowlers in the shorter format. It's like that's where they seem to flourish. And so it was great to see sort of the um, generation new and generation old of these Sydney Thunder all-rounders win the game for the Sydney Thunder. Well, you were lucky enough to chat with Dan Sams just after the match, a couple of days after, uh, what did you have to say and what did you chat about and what are we going to hear? I think I just wanted to um, first get his opinion on the the three new rules that have been introduced and what he thought on that and also what he's done with his batting. I mean, we saw last summer in the Big Bash, he, he conceded something like six or seven ducks in the BBL and he comes out and starts the tournament with his highest ever BBL score. And um, yeah, it was good to hear what he had to say about how he improved his batting and the influence that Ricky Ponting specifically had. All right, here's that chat with Dan Sams. Firstly, congratulations on a superb innings last night. You must, you must be pretty chuffed after a match-winning performance, I suppose. Yeah, pretty happy with it. Happy to be able to get the boys over the line in a, in a pretty tough position. Yeah, certainly, certainly. At the, um, I guess at the 10-over mark, it seemed... Pretty unlikely, but um, I think last night was your highest ever BBL score and your batting does look the best it's ever been, really. Is there anything in particular you've been working on on your batting? Yeah, I've, I've been working on getting my hands a bit higher. I was able to... Um, I, I was lucky enough to be uh, with Ricky Ponning in the IPL um, and I was able to do some work with him. So he's been helping me with that, just get be able to keep my hands up higher, get myself in, in a good power position. So I've just got to enough time to get my swing onto the ball so I can clear the rope. How did you find your maiden IPL campaign? Obviously, um, you just came back from that a few weeks ago, uh, working with the likes of Ponting and that. How did you find that maiden IPL campaign? Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, it was a great experience. I got a lot from it. Um, obviously, playing with uh, international superstars like Shreya Sire and Shika Darwin, Shimon Hetmeyer and, and the like. It was, it, it was awesome just playing amongst those guys. Um, uh, yeah, it was it was a really really good experience and um, it it was good fun. So your batting obviously is looking great, but um, it was bizarre that last season you had this sort of uncanny streak of ducks in the BBL, which was um, a bit bizarre considering what a strong performer you are with the bat. What did you put that down to at the time? Did it become sort of a psychological issue, um, or was it just a streak of bad luck with the bat? No, yeah, I think yeah, it was. It did come down to the mental mental side of it. Um, 
I didn't quite have my head around what I needed to do in the specific role I was in, um, in regards to being like going out there and trying to take on the game and, and that kind of thing. I kind of went out there and didn't really give myself a chance. Um, so, and I even did the same thing first game, um, this BBL. So I said to myself, I'm giving, I'm giving myself a chance from now on and, um, kind of just, yeah. Let, let let myself face a few balls before I try and clear the rope. Give myself the best opportunity to get runs and the best opportunity to to get a win for the guys. Of course, of course. Do you have a bit more of an understanding now of what your role is in the starting eleven for the Thunder? Yeah, so I, I I had an understanding of what my role was, but I just didn't have my head around how I needed to go about it to get the best out out of myself. Mm. Um, so after. After having a year like I had last year with the bat, you kind of you go you go inwards a little bit and have a bit of a, a reflection period after the tournament. Think about what 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 are the things that you can do better physically and mentally. Um, they're the things that I've been working on since then and um, since coming back from IPL. I feel like I'm in a really good headspace and I'm hitting the ball really well. Um, and so recently you went over to England with the Australian T20 squad. Um, you didn't have a chance to play in any of the short format matches but how was that experience for you working alongside some of Australia's best bowlers yeah it was really it was really cool um I was obviously it was my first tour um first time going to England even though obviously because of COVID it wasn't really the the proper England experience but um it was it was awesome I was just really excited to kind of get amongst it and just experience that tour and be amongst an Aussie squad um and I was able to kind of do do a bit of work there as well, which which was awesome. Um, you yourself have been in and out of bubbles around the world for the past five months or so now, and that obviously continue for the next couple of months. But is there anything? Um, is there any bubble fatigue at the moment for you? Is there, are you noticing any impact on your mental side of things as the season drags on? Yeah, so there's definitely been mental strain, hundred percent. Um, being being in these bubbles and. It's not too bad now because uh, we're able to kind of get out. Obviously, wear a mask where we need to wear a mask. We can go play golf. We can kind of have have something to eat, but make sure you're outside and all those kind of things. Social distance. So you, it is a lot better than what it was earlier on, um, where like in, in the IPO you were basically stuck in the hotel. You could go play golf occasionally, but you, if you weren't doing cricket, you were in the hotel. Um, so. I definitely did notice some mental fatigue, particularly in, in Dubai, the IPL. Um, and that was actually a really good learning curve for me, um, just fig- figuring out what those kind of red flags were and things like that. Um, at the moment, I'm, I'm feeling quite energised and I'm happy being back in Australia, being kind of back home um, and just, yeah, look, looking forward to all the cricket that's coming up and looking forward to the opportunity to to uh, go home when, when that comes. Um, so what, we, what we've seen so far in the BBL is the introduction uh, of these three new rule changes, these three innovations. Um, no side yet has opted to take the X factor, uh, which is, I guess, somewhat surprising considering there's been almost a dozen games. Has there been any discussion within the Thunder about when they would consider utilising it and bring it into a game? Yeah, we're just kind of... We had a conversation about all the rules, and we just said we just got to be really fluid and be really adaptable. So, um, with the X Factor, I think 
something something drastic will will have to happen for a team to use it. I think, um, but who knows what 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 will happen with that? Um, I'm not really, I'm not really one that's going to make a decision on that. That's going to be up to to Bondi and Fergie about if they want to use an X factor. But I think speaking for for our team, I think because we're so balanced, we don't really need it. Because we've got so many all-rounders, we've got a really deep batting lineup. We've got awesome batters at the top, and we've got all our bowlers. We don't really. We've got all the options in that eleven, so it's not really. I don't know if it's beneficial for us. And um, I suppose the last thing I'd love to ask is, um, you've got a bit of a four or five day break leading into the next match, which I believe is on Saturday or so. What will the Thunder squad be working on over the next few days um, leading into that next fixture? Yeah, so we've we've actually got an eight day break. Oh, even better against, <laughs> against Perth. Yeah, yeah. So we've got we've got a nice break. So the next couple of days we're just going to be relaxing. Some of us will go play golf. Just yeah, <clears throat> we're just going to relax and hang out together and 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 yeah, just chill. But um, I think we um, we're on a good path. I don't we don't we don't need to kind of reinvent the wheel. We don't need to work on anything else in particular. We just need to keep working on. Uh, make, making sure that we prepare for each team well, and then we're clear on our plans and work work on our execution at training. Um, that's that's all it comes down to. As long as you're clear, you got your plan, and then you're able to, to uh, execute, then you're in a good position. Mm. How's your how's your golf game going at the moment? Yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. I've uh, <laughs> been able to drop my hand cap down to seven. Oh, well done. Sorry. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy with. It. I was able to play a fair bit in Dubai. I've I haven't played much since being back. I just played once, but getting out there this afternoon, so that'll be good. Oh well, all the best for that. All the best. Um, yeah, Daniel. Again, congratulations on last night. It was uh, I was watching with my roommates and just going berserk in the living room. So congratulations and uh, all the best for the rest of the tournament. Uh, looking forward to seeing how the how the Thunder go. Personally, I found quite interesting what he had to say about that that tour that he went on as part of the Australian squad to England. I know looking at some of the young players in the BBL now, obviously you've got Sams and you've got Philippe and Meredith. They all went on that tour to England. They didn't play a single game there, but the experience they would have got from that series would have been immeasurable. And we're kind of seeing the results of that now. Philippe with that incredible innings down in Hobart and Meredith has been bowling very well for the Hurricanes so far. So that has been fantastic to see. Nick, we finally saw the use of the X-Factor subs on Tuesday night. Uh, what, what did you make of it? Johan Bota, uh, the, the first lucky man to miss out, and I think Briggs over in Adelaide also missed out. Yeah, interesting that both sides opted to switch out a bowling option for an extra batting option. That was that was interesting to see, but both of them somewhat flopped because I think, unfortunately, for the, um, for the Hurricanes, uh, was it Mac Wright who came in? Uh, he got a pretty leisurely run of ball 14, which at the death overs was not ideal. And then for the strikers, uh, they brought in a batsman as well who escapes at the moment, but he got a golden duck. So it didn't really pay off, unfortunately, on this occasion. But I think we're starting to see how it could be used. You know, if there is an early collapse, you can bring in an extra batter. And if one of your bowlers just didn't have a great day, his first ball went for a few runs, you can then also bring in an extra option there as well. So it was good to see it finally happen. I was concerned we weren't going to see the X Factor at all this summer. 
I think it has been interesting that captains and coaches just sort of have opted not to use it. And I think that is something that we will see. And look, at the end of the day, something that we've talked about before is your 12th and 13th men aren't going to be game changers. They're just going to be people with different skills. So it's not about substituting a player into the match who is absolutely going to change the game. It's just about adapting to the conditions. And it's probably why we haven't seen them use that much. Yeah, spot on, spot on. I think teams are slowly starting to work out how they will use the X factor in uh, in their different ways. Because obviously, depending on the squad, that depends on how you will utilize the X factor for sure. I guess one other big talking point out of the BBL so far, uh, some massive fines for the Brisbane Heat and Chris Lynn and Dan Lawrence after they broke some of the, the COVID and bubble protocols in Canberra. Uh, a bit of an interesting scenario, this one. Obviously, Lynn came out and <clears throat> apologised. I think he said he admitted to taking a photo with a member of the public, caught a taxi, stuff like that. Pretty innocuous stuff considering where Australia is at in terms of COVID. But how important is it, do you think, that we keep these strict protocols and make sure the players stay in line? Oh, it is important. And um, they were they were fined rightfully and Lynn did apologise rightfully. And it just, they are well informed on what they can and can't do in the bubble. They are told over and over again what the limits are. And um, I think it really was just a dumb error on their part. And um, the fine was bigger than I thought it was going to be. It was pretty. It was a pretty hefty five-figure sum. Um, but regardless, I think the players just need to be so careful, really, really careful. And if they're ever unsure about something, they have people they can ask questions for. So I think just a bit of a lazy moment from uh, from Lynn and Lawrence there. And uh, I'm, I've got no doubt we will see this again in cricket over the coming months, whether that's in the BBL or another tournament. Pe- people make mistakes. Um, but thankfully at the moment, Australia seems to have the COVID situation under control. So that hopefully there won't be any dire consequences, but uh, those are some famous last words. What did you make of the on-field social distancing that the pair had to participate in? It was bizarre, wasn't it? It was uh, just <laughs> just some weird footage of them having to sit in different change rooms. And so it was just a bit of a bizarre situation, but I, if that's the protocols, I, I guess that's what needs to happen. But uh yeah, just uh, cricket in the age of COVID. Another weird example of what we're going to see over the coming, or well, however long. A couple other big performances that we've seen so far. Peter Siddle with a lovely five-wicket haul, complete with speed dealer Sonny's to go with it. I think it's been fantastic to see his sort of resurgence for the last few years for the strikers. And also the Renegades got handed a massive loss by the Sydney Sixers down in Hobart off the back of Josh Philippi's incredible 95. Funnily enough, also the first time the Sixers had ever passed 200 in the Big Bash, and they were the last team to not pass that total. So some interesting stuff that has happened so far. Anything else that has caught your eye so far in the Big Bash, Nick? I think just on quickly on that Renegades record loss, um, Michael Klinger, the coach came out afterwards and conceded that they were chasing that bash boost point. Um, if they had, if that bash boost, bash boost point didn't exist, then potentially they would have got a much larger score because they weren't just slogging it for the, and aiming for that 10 over mark. And so that record loss really was, it seems to be due to the introduction of these three new rules because they wouldn't have been as erratic with the bat if, it, if that didn't exist. And I guess we kind of saw the flip side to that in that Thunder win over the Heat, that the Thunder kind of kept going a little bit harder because they're like, all right, we can at least try and get the bash boost point. But eventually they kept going with it and won the match. So we've definitely seen both sides of that new rule. Yeah, spot on, spot on. It's uh, 
It's it's interesting to see. I think I was very skeptical about these rules to start off, but I'm slowly starting to warm to them more. But uh, I think the X Factor is the one that still needs to impress me personally the most. I'm I'm not yet convinced wholly by that just yet. Definitely. All right. Well, a quick look at the table, and this is as of the 17th of December. Stars, three matches, two wins, and one no result. Obviously, their game on Wednesday against the Scorchers got rained out, so they're sitting on top with 10. The Hobart Hurricanes are on seven points in second place after their three matches. The Sixers, the Strikers, the Renegades, and the Thunder all have one win and one loss. And then the Scorchers and the Heat are both winless to start the season. I guess one thing that we were chatting about earlier and that you really like about this new ladder is that the bash boost point does kind of give a bit more breathing room in the ladder for teams if they perform well. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, if there is that comprehensive victory and someone does take the full four points, then they get that little extra boost on the ladder, I suppose. And yeah, so certainly it's nice to see that kind of separate the ladder a bit more instead of having, you know, three or four teams equal on the exact same score on the ladder, which seems to always happen um, in the Big Bash. So yeah, no, that it's great to look in the ladder. It's, um, it spreads it out a bit more. Fantastic. All right, one other bit of news we have to look at is that the rest of the schedule, I guess, for the domestic summer has been released. And we're going to be seeing Sheffield Shield and One Day Cricket all over the country again, not just in hubs in Adelaide. So that'll be fantastic to see. Was there anything that sort of stuck out for you when you saw the the new schedule? It's the latest we're ever going to be seeing domestic cricket in the country. It's They've confirmed that it's going to be the latest finish ever for the season. Well, I think that was necessary, unfortunately, because Victoria need to play those seven first-class games in something like eight weeks. Like, that's going to be really, really tough on the squad. Um, but I think it's just, unfortunately, a consequence of those COVID restrictions they did have um, earlier in the year. But uh, I, I one thing I am doing is booking out my sick day on that New South Wales versus Victoria match at North Sydney Oval. I mean, the likes of potentially uh, Nathan Lyon, Trent Copeland, Moses Henriquez, Curtis Patterson, Marcus Harris, Will Pekofsky, James Nick Pattinson, Nick Madden. Oh, like the list of names in these, they're the two strongest sides in the competition on paper, and they're going to be battling it out at North Sydney Oval. I'll be lying there in the sun with a, with a beer, potentially with my sunnies on. Oh, it's going to be fantastic. I'm very much looking forward to specifically that game. Uh, bringing catching hands because especially if we're at North Sydney Oval, I think those boundaries will be cleared quite regularly. <laughs> I haven't taken a catch for three years, so I hope it doesn't come my way. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to wrap up some of the other international news going around the cricket and Nick will be back with his Savage Seed. All right, Nick, we have to take a look at some of the other news happening around the world in cricket. New Zealand, they are the joint number one test team in the world after their series whitewash against the West Indies. Could we be seeing Australia versus New Zealand at Lords for the ICC Test Championship final? Oh, I'd certainly like that. That'd be a fantastic contest. Um, because obviously when New Zealand came to Australia last summer, they were very disappointing. Just in every facet, they were really underwhelming. So... Hopefully having that neutral venue might, um, I guess, even the playing field slightly. So that would be a really good contest. But realistically, if I had to pick who the two best test sides in the world, it's Australia and India, aren't they? Surely. 
Oh, I think it's definitely a lot closer than people give credit for now. England have probably just fallen a step behind in terms of they haven't been able to find an 11. They've probably got a squad of 14 to 15 and haven't been able to decide who is in their best test 11. But when it comes to sort of Australia, India, New Zealand, they've pretty much got an 11, maybe 12th player, if you add it in there, who are definitely in their best 11. I think that makes a big difference. So, look, I it obviously depends the conditions. In New Zealand, it would be incredibly hard to beat New Zealand just because they're so used to the conditions there, same as when you come to Australia and beat us, trying to beat Australia. So I would say Australia and India are just ahead, but I, I consider and I rate New Zealand very highly. No, as do I, as do I. They, they've got the best batting lineup I can remember in a New Zealand team at the moment. And uh, I think, as I said earlier, their problem is they don't have a strike spinner. Um, they've got a great pace attack, but... Every time they have a spinner, whether it's Mitch Santner or whoever else there is, they trial it. They always are just pretty ordinary. So um, if they can find someone to round out that bowling attack, then yeah, they'd definitely be up there with one of the top two sides in the in the world for sure. One of the other headlines that sort of made waves throughout this week: news from ESPN Crick Info that the Australian tour of South Africa Test series could potentially come back over to Australia and be held in Perth and still be sort of a South Africa home match at the Wacker. I mean, I think that's pretty exciting if that would happen. I think there's obviously a lot of logistical stuff that has to be go through for that to happen, but wouldn't that be something? I think it would be great for Western Australia. Obviously, they didn't have a lot of cricket this summer for a variety of reasons, but it would be great for them. Um, but, yeah, just a shame for Cricket South Africa. A massive shame. They've had a pretty tough summer in that they had all all these um, controversies with their with their leadership and management in, in cricket South Africa. Their tour against England has been cancelled halfway through or postponed and because due to all those COVID cases. And now they're losing a three-test series against Australia, which is the sequel to the ball-tampering series. I mean, that would be a massive shame for them and, and South African cricket fans. But I think we do need to consider the safety and health of the players and staff. And if Perth is the solution, then then great. Hooray. Go, go Australia. That's <laughs> fantastic. Definitely. And I think that just at the end of the day, the broadcast rights money for Cricket South Africa, like most cricket international organizations, is so important. So they'll have to just do whatever they can to get that over the line. One other bit of news that we have to look at, the Australian women's team won the Don Award for essentially the best sporting performance in Australia in 2020. They're only the second team to win the award. Ash Barty won it last year. They're also only the, the first female team to win it. The Socceroos won it back in 2005 when they qualified for the FIFA World Cup. How good is it to see the Australian women recognised like this after the incredible year they've had? Oh, brilliant, isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. And rightful winners as well. That um, that T20 World Cup final at the MCG is probably the sporting highlight of the year for Australian fans. And uh, yeah, I think looking ahead to 2022, which is going to be another big year for them, this is just like another feather in their cap, I suppose. They really are dominating world cricket at the moment. They are sort of Invincibles 2.0, I suppose. And uh yeah, looking ahead to that potential trio of a T20 World Cup, a 50 of World Cup and a Commonwealth Games within 12 months. Definitely cannot wait for that action. And hopefully that India series that is scheduled to take place, I think starting in Canberra, sort of end of January does take place because it'd be fantastic to see them back in action and extend that ODI record. 
All right, Nick, before we get into Savage Seed, I want to put something to you. We saw an interesting article from esteemed journalist Malcolm Knox throughout the week talking about the bouncer and that potentially it's on its way out to cricket. I think a lot of people misinterpreted the article as him arguing for the bounce to be ruled out of cricket, but it was more that the way it's going, cricket will have no choice to remove the bouncer from the game because we've just seen so many concussions. Obviously, in the last sort of week and a little bit, we've seen Will Pukowski, Cam Green and Harry Conway suffer concussion during a game and be ruled out. Do you think this is somewhere we can go in the future where we might see cricket without bouncers? I I personally wouldn't like to see that um, because the bouncer, the short ball is such an important tool um, for bowlers to use in all three formats. And there's already so much in the game that benefits the batsman. I mean, the batters get enough as it is to take away then another wicket-taking delivery. Um, would just make the game even more lopsided and support the batters even more. Um, this is obviously a discussion that came up five years ago following the Phil Hughes incident, um, and, and, and understandably so. But um, I personally would not like to see the bouncer eradicated from the game. It's it's too it's too much of a part of it. It's too big, and um, it's a tactic that can be really beneficial, especially against low order batsmen. We saw India do that in the um, Australia A game, and um, unfortunately Harry Conway did then suffer concussion from it. So um, it's just unfortunately a, a, a part of the game that we um, would like to see less of concussion. But in all sport, there's concussion really. In all competitive sport, um, it's just a, a, a sad part of it, I suppose. I tend to agree. And it, I guess it is a little bit different, but I see a lot of similarities. If a short ball catches the arm and someone breaks their arm playing cricket while batting, or if there's a fielding incident and they hurt a finger or... For example, look at Graham Smith when he came back out with a broken hand and batted. Like that was a batting injury that that was a normal ball. These sort of things just happen in cricket. I think some of the interesting discussion has been around maybe we need to finally redesign helmets so they better protect for concussion. I think that's certainly an argument. But I, I, I don't think we'll ever see a time where cricket can rule out the bouncer. Not only because it'll be hard to enforce, but just I just don't think it's something that needs to be done because there's other steps that can be taken first. I mean, we already have the restriction of, I think, a maximum of two short deliveries um, per over. I think that's already in place. So that just prevents a continual bombardment of short balls. So, yeah, we already have those restrictions in place. And um, I think to go any further would be a mistake. Okay, Nick, time to round off this episode. Have you got a savage seed for me? I do. I do. Um, I don't love this one, but I I think it's just going to be a... A reality in this upcoming series that um, of the Australian bowling quartet, Mitch Stark will be the lowest wicket taker. Oh, okay. Uh, even with the two pink ball tests. Well, I think what we forget is how well Hazelwood and Cummins bowled the pink ball as well. True, they are fantastic true. with the pink ball. They've got a great record. And Nathan Lyon, I mean, at the SCG, he took a 10 for in January and I can see him taking some more wickets this summer as well. And he also performs well with the pink ball. So I, I just feel like watching Stark leading into this series, not just in that one day in T20 series where he was well below his best, but as well in the Sheffield Shield, he didn't really stand out. He didn't have that usual flair and dominance that we have seen from Stark in, in past seasons. So I don't know. I just don't think he's looking at his best leading into this series. And um, I think of the four, of the mighty four, I think he'll emerge with the least number of wickets next to his name. 
Okay, that is interesting. I guess I personally would love to see a sort of series where they all get that sort of 15 wicket mark. Um, it'd be fantastic to see. I think Nathan Lyon will certainly pass his 400 wicket milestone. He's only got 10 to go to get that. And if he plays all four tests, which I'm pretty sure he will, he'll bring up his 100th test. So this is going to be a big season for Gary. All right, Nick, that is all we've got time for today. Do you, do you not have ho- a savage seed? No savage seed from you? Oh, nothing. Nothing's sort of piquing my interest this week. I was going to go oh, with okay. something a bit earlier after chatting about Rahane, and I, I reckon beyond Pajara, obviously Coley's only here for one test, but I think he'll be India's highest run scorer hmm. this series. Uh, so I'll put my cap on that. But I'm going to go with Nathan Lyon to have... Um, I'll go bold. I won't just say the leading wicket taker. I reckon his average this series will be below 18. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. I think he will have plenty of success this series. He has had plenty of success against India before and with plenty on the line for him. Nathan Lyon is going to have a fantastic series. Oh, if Nathan Lyon does finish with a bowling average less than 18, then Australia will win the series because that just... Any spinner who has a record like that in, in Australia will help their side to, to many victories. So, yeah, if, if that does um, come to fruition, then I'd expect a 3-1, 4-0 series victory to Australia. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Hopefully the weather remains good for these next five days in Adelaide. Nick, thank you for joining me again today, as usual. Thank you, Locke. It's always been a pleasure, mate. And remember, subscribe to the Boundary Rider podcast on Apple or Spotify. Hit us up on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are all over it. And you can also contact us at boundaryriderpod at gmail.com. We'll catch you next week.